0: For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, God's word is true. From the front cover to the back. And everything we read in that word is there for a purpose. For God loves us, and he wants us first to bring us to himself, and then to use us while we're in this world until he finally takes us home. So may he bless the reading of his word to our hearts this day. Would you pray with me now, please? Father, um, we uh, uh, just so much appreciate this church and what you're doing here. We believe, Lord, that you meet with us as we gather here Sunday after Sunday. And you have given us so many wonderful blessings. Every good thing we have ever had has come from you. And you have given us this word. You've given us your son. You've given us your spirit. And you give us the bread of life as we gather around your word. And you speak to us. And what's important is your word and your message. And so we ask that you would allow the messenger to simply disappear behind the cross of Jesus Christ. And that we would hear you speak. And we would respond to what we hear. And so may our lives be changed. And may we make a difference in the lives of those around us. And we ask it in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So you understand whenever you read a story that what makes a story good, or one of the things that makes a story good is the twists and turns in the plot, right? And so it doesn't matter what story you're talking about, whether it's The Hobbit or The Lords of the Rings or Star Wars, whatever it might be, there's these twists, these turns, and they often catch us off guard, and they are the thing that makes the story so interesting. And when those twists and turns are more true to life, the kinds of things that you know really could happen, it makes the story so much more realistic. Well, the truth of the matter is, the human story is filled with those kinds of twists and turns. There was a creation and a Garden of Eden where men and women enjoyed the presence of the living God, and a serpent comes in and turns the hearts of the men and women from their God, and a fall happens. And we would expect at that point that God would say, Enough and be done with us, and yet he did not do that. He continued to maintain this world, and he continued in one manner or another in the midst of judgment itself to show grace. And then we get to a place, and one man is singled out of all of them, and is called to start a nation... Excuse me. to start the nation of Israel and Abraham was called and that began this building of this nation and then Moses was the deliverer and that nation was taken out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and took over the promised lands and there were ups and downs and twists and turns and then on a Christmas morning the first of all a savior was God himself entered human existence not as we would have expected as the king which he rightfully is but as a baby born in a manger and he lived and he died in an obscure place where no one would have ever heard of him if it wasn't for who he was and he did miracles and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he went about doing good and we would think that the world would have united around such a person and what they did instead was they crucified him. But the story wasn't over, was it? Because three days later, he rose from the dead. And since that time, he has been at work in our world through us. (laughs) through the church specifically, but that means us. And even in this place here, this small group of people in this little kind of -of out-of-the-way corner of the world, this eastern shore which the other side of the state doesn't think a whole lot about, (laughs) which politicians describe as flyover country, God is at work here in our midst. But the story continues and there are more twists and turns. And we came to the book of the Revelation and we have been studying that for many months now. And we have come to a place where we are going to find another one of those twists in the story that will catch us off guard. So the last time we were together, if you'll remember, two weeks ago, we talked about the defeat of the Antichrist and his armies at the next great event of the history of humankind, the second coming of Christ. And at that point, Christ does come back, he returns, and he defeats the forces of evil. And that battle is summarized almost as briefly as that in the book of revelation if, if we were writing that story if we were writing the story of that battle we would spend a great deal of time and go into a great deal uh, into great detail telling exactly how that battle unfolds In fact, whenever it is written about by humans, uh, just everyday ordinary kind of people who decide to write about things like that, much more is said than what we find in chapter 19. You see, we're fascinated with the battle, and it appeals to our curiosity. While the Bible itself really focuses on something different, it focuses on the thing which is really important, and that is the victor of the battle, the one who wins it, which is Jesus Christ, and then what follows that victory. Now, that conflict itself occurs at Armageddon, and that term, Armageddon, is certainly a biblical term, but it's also entered our vernacular as the larger culture, and it's used to refer to really any dramatic and catastrophic conflict that will likely destroy the world or almost destroy the world or to bring to the end the human race or come really close to doing it anyway and so we have terms like nuclear armageddon and yet most people still realize that it has a specifically christian meaning and most still understand that it comes from the bible and and in that context When people think of it in that way, they think of it as the final battle between the forces of good and evil. Even Christians tend to think of it in those terms. And yet, that is not quite true. It's not the final battle between good and evil. There is one more war to be fought. And that battle of Armageddon is fought, as we said, in chapter 19, which we looked at two weeks ago, and we've noted that, and that chapter tells us about it. We know that Christ wins the victory, and we're told that at that point the Antichrist and the false prophet, well, they're thrown into the lake of fire. And it's not until chapter 20 that we learn what the fate of Satan is. And Satan wasn't cast into hell as we might have expected it. Instead, he was put into prison. And again, chapter 20 is what tells us about that event and a whole lot more. So I want to invite you to uh, join me, please, once again, in the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Well, we're going to be looking at chapter 20 today. So... As we said, Christ has returned at this point in the scriptures, where are we beginning? He's defeated the armies of the Antichrist and consigned him and the false prophet to the lake of fire. And then verses 1 through 3 tell us the fate of Satan. And that is, he's simply locked up in prison. And so we read there, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And we're going to stop reading right there for a moment. So Satan is cast into prison, not into the lake of fire, but into prison. And we're being shown in a symbolic way that Satan will be Bound. That is, he will not be able to exercise any of his abilities. And he's thrown into the abyss, and it's locked, and it's, it's sealed over him. And the Bible is really making clear here that Satan will not be free to wander about the earth as he has been in the past. And all of this shows us that the earth will be safe for, from him for a period of a thousand years. So then the scripture goes into some detail to identify him to us. Um, First, he is the dragon uh, from the book of the Revelation. And we spent a good time together in our study looking at this dragon. And we know that he is behind the evil of that time, the, the evil of the great tribulation, the persecution, and the martyrdom of Christians, and the attack on the Jewish nation, and the promotion of idolatry and all its inherent evils but he is also the ancient serpent. That is, he was there in the Garden of Eden, and it was him who tempted our first parents, who then fell and brought sin and death into our world. He also tempted Christ while Christ was here on earth, and it was Satan's one complete and absolute failure. He continues his temptation into our own day. He's also the devil, that is the supreme evil being that brings mayhem wherever he goes. He's no match for God, of course, but he leads an army of demons and he wreaks havoc wherever he uh, travels over our whole world. And he's Satan. He is the accuser of our brothers and sisters and he accuses us You and I, if you name the name of Christ, he accuses us before God as often as he can. And he will accuse us to any and all who listen. And he has done that work down through the ages. And all of his evil work will be brought to a stop when that dragon is locked away in the abyss. And so for a thousand years, the earth is going to be free of him. But the end of verse 3 tells us his imprisonment is not the end of the story. And we might have thought it was. And so we read there after that. That is after a thousand years. He must be set free for a short time. None of us would have expected that. Were we writing the story, I doubt we would have gone this direction. And Satan is paroled. But you can be sure it's not because he has changed his ways or because there's any doubt as to his true character, nor is it because he has already served his time. There's a reason for this, and the end of the chapter tells us why. But first, before we get there, we are told very briefly again about that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And this chapter really doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about it. And again, the Bible here just gives us a sketch of what it's really going to be like. You actually learn more about the millennium from the Old Testament than you do from the book of Revelation. Scattered throughout the Old Testament in Isaiah and Ezekiel, the psalms and in many other books as well we learn about life without war We, we learn about life without any need of any kind there will be plenty for everybody there will be no poverty at all there will be no violence of any kind we've all seen that picture haven't we of the lion and the lamb lying down together and maybe you've been told that that picture isn't accurate, not quite accurate. You've heard that it's actually a calf that lies down with the lion. Well, so be it. But in a larger sense, it is accurate because calf or lion, either one will be safe from the tooth of the uh, lion at that point. The millennium will be everything and more than humankind has only ever dreamed of for thousands of thousands of years, for many millennia. Revelation focuses on the millennia, though, in really a quite different way. And part of that focus, it tells us who is in charge at that time, and it also tells us what they will be doing. Of course, we know, don't we, that Christ is in charge at that time. Uh, But we also understand that we serve with him. And so we read in verses uh, 4 and following, it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge. Now, I'm going to stop right there again for a moment. See, the authority to judge means that they will rule, and we understand that they rule with Christ. And the ones who are seated on those thrones are the resurrected followers of Jesus Christ. And that includes all believers who are still alive when he returns. Those who don't taste death, but who are changed in the twinkling of an eye. And the end of this passage makes that clear, but we know from many other places in the Scripture that Revelation itself uh, tells us, even back in chapter 3, that, in one of the seven uh, letters to the churches that we 're told that those who overcome and that is all of us we 're Christians, we will share in. God's rule. And that's where we are here. We will share in that rule. Now before any more is said about the millennial reign in this vision, it it reminds us of the martyrs and and that they too are going to be there. So we continue reading, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. and They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so those who suffered in this way, uh, who who were martyred because they stood for Christ, are singled out. And and again, uh, we're giving only the briefest amount of information, but, but these are really the great of the great. They wear another crown, one that is reserved only for the martyrs. They have not been forgotten, and they will reap the reward of their faithfulness in the face of death. So the martyrs are raised, but all of God's people were there. And verse five, as verse 5 demonstrates, and so we read there, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. And again, I'm going to stop right there. See, that first resurrection is a resurrection of the believers. All others will not be raised until the end of the millennium, and their fate is told at the end of this chapter, and we're going to get there soon enough. But those of the first resurrection are God's people who are blessed. And that simply means that they have God's approval, his complete approval. It's not provisional anyway, and they are holy. They they are, in this setting, they share the same character of God. They're not merely set apart for him, but they share his character. And we have become, or will become at that time, everything that God intended us to be. And so that's who will be ruling for that thousand-year period. Christ will be present with us on earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and the martyrs will stand with him in a places of honor, and all other believers will share in his rule in blessedness, completely approved of by God, and holiness like our Savior, Jesus. That's who we are It's the rest of verse 6 that tells us what we're going to be doing during that time. And so we read there, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that we reign with him makes clear the meaning of verse 4 that those thrones were set for judgment. And we've been talking about that all along. But the other phrase here tells us something of what that reign is going to look like. And that is is that we are going to be priests of God and of Christ. So just what does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest of God? Well, you know what a priest does. A priest does basically two things in this world. A priest represents God to man, and he represents man to God. Now, this might surprise you, but there are people in the millennium, as the rest of the chapter is going to make clear, who do not yet know Christ as their Savior. Our rule and our reign with Christ means we will take responsibility for those people as we try to lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. You see, we'll be doing the kind of thing we we have actually always done or should always have been doing only we'll do it then without any hindrance of sin where the light of christ will shine through us without any cloud to shroud it in a perfect world unmarked by the curse which sin has brought now i know you're all sitting there and you're wondering where do these people come from well i wonder that too Because I tell you, the text doesn't really say. But it looks like when the days of the tribulation are shortened, which was done for the sake of God's people, there are still some people who have not taken the mark of the beast, and yet they haven't put their faith in Christ. And what their final outcome will be, we really cannot know, but it's from them that this great multitude of people are born. And I have to tell you that a thousand years without death is going to bring a staggering population. Still, these people are in a state of sin. Still, they are in need of Christ as a remainder. Of the chapter is going to demonstrate, though everything else that they could ever need is provided for. And our task at that time, and you and I will be there if you know Christ, no matter how soon or how far away that millennium is, you and I will be there. Our task will be to bring them to Christ and maybe, maybe literally be able to bring them to Christ at that time. But the sad thing is, is not everyone comes just as happens in our own day. Today, which brings us back to Satan and his final trick, Satan once again goes out and deceives the nation. So, verse seven and following says this: When the thousand years are over, and we would have never expected this, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them together for battle. Now I have to tell you, Gog and Magog are simply symbolic of the unbelieving world, like Babylon as we've looked at throughout uh, Revelation. They've set themselves against God and the rebellion up until this point has been in secret and it only comes out when Satan deceives them. And what they do is they go to war against God and they're just this vast great army and so we continue reading in number. They are like the sand on the seashore, and they marched across the breadth of the earth. And I have to stop here for just a moment. You know, this great multitude of people marching against Christ, out against Christ and His people, it doesn't mean, even though it's that great multitude, that all of our efforts during the millennium will be useless. You know, the Bible simply doesn't tell us how many people if any do come to Christ how many do I I like to believe that during that time that a great multitude will come even greater than this that march out against him but I don't know that and yet it is so unlike God to give us a job which we cannot with his help accomplish at least to some extent even as it is now I believe there will be in those days people who put their faith in Christ. But it is clear from the Scripture that many don't. They don't come to Christ. And so we read what comes next. They surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. They are about in this place to attack God's people. But before a shot's fired, so to speak, the last battle, Satan's final hurrah, his last trick, is brought to a crashing end when the the rest of verse 9 tells us, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so here we have it. Satan finally gets what's coming to him. He's joined the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he will never get out again. And there is no escape for those people who find themselves in that awful place. And that brings us to the last part of the chapter. The great white throne judgment. And it is awfully sad and somber and frightening passage. Let me read in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne in Him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from His presence, and there was no place for them. Now, only those things which are living and eternal are left. Now, all the gold, all the silver, all the houses, and the lands, and the things, which this world covets so much, the power and the fame, it's all gone. Only things which are left are those things which are living and are eternal. Verse 12, And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life a scene where judgment is set here the drama of the moment increases the earth and the heavens are gone there's only the great white throne and the one sitting on it who holds in his hand the fate of everyone there and the books are waiting tomes and everyone here and everyone there knows the kinds of things that are written in the in them and we continue reading the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books and the scene gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done you know we're being told that those who don't belong to Christ no matter where they are in the sea or in Hades or in the grip of death will stand before Jesus Christ And all of them will be judged for what they have done. See, the book records the things they did while they were alive on this earth. And the judgment is based strictly on their own merit. And you and I know, don't we know that no one except Jesus Christ ever merited eternal life? And their doom is just about to fall. But before it does, verse 14 tells us just a little bit more. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Everything which has to do with sin is cast into that lake of fire, which is a second and final and eternal death. All which is evil is going to be banished from God's kingdom forever. And before that final disaster comes, one last check is made. And when that fails, well, it's all over. Verse 15, we read this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The end of the wicked have come. (laughs) The story of the righteous goes on in chapter 21 and 22 and forever. But here, the sad story of our sin has finally been brought to a close, and the unbelievers are shut out from the presence of God, God from whom they have turned their back on all their lives long, and they have finally got what they wanted, a place where God was not, and they will find it a burden too big to bear. All that's left after they're gone is everything worth having forever and ever. You see, that's the point here. That God is God and he's showing us what he will do and it's not what we would have expected. But we could ask the question, what is the point of chapter two, twenty? What are we being shown here and just why? Just why was Satan released again to wreak havoc once more in paradise? Well, it's to show us the depth of our sin. It's to disclose to us its magnitude. To reveal the sinfulness of sin. You see, when everything in the world is made perfect, when only the righteous and the holy rule, when Christ himself sits on the throne, when humankind has every advantage, it still is not enough to change the human heart. The rebellion is still there just below the surface. All Satan does is bring it out. That's all he has ever done. Our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all and we can't even know it. We are tempted and dragged away by our own evil desires which brings death and that's the wages of sin. All of our righteousness, every last piece of it is is a filthy rag before God do you know what it takes it takes an act of God to change us it takes the death of God on a cross to pay for our sins and to begin that change in us nothing less will do nothing else will do You know, God created this universe. He spoke it into existence. He maintains it today by the power of his will. And one day, he's going to destroy the present heavens and the earth and make new ones. So great is our God. But the most powerful, the most wonderful, the most amazing thing he has ever done was to pay for our sins and give us eternal life by the resurrection, by the death and the resurrection of his only begotten son. That's what chapter 20 teaches us. The day is going to come. The twists and the turns are all laid out before us. If we didn't have the word our minds would be spinning at that time. But we've been given a glimpse of what's yet to come. And we'll be there. We'll be doing the same kinds of things there that we should be doing here and now. The Bible tells us that God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. We shouldn't either. I, I read those, that paragraph about the great white throne judgment, and it breaks my heart. The people I know, people you know, will stand in that awful place. They don't have to. Christ has come and we you and I are the light of the world we have the message of light: the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the only thing that can take care of our sin the only thing thing that will give us eternal life. And that's what this table is all about. It's a a statement of the death of Jesus. It's where we remember what he has done and also it's where we look forward to that day when we're with him in the kingdom that we'll see as we look further on in this book. But we look forward to it now when Christ is with us forever and ever. So I'd like to ask the men who are going to help me this uh, morning with the communion to come forward, and as they do that, I I would just like to uh, remind you of some things, and maybe if you're here and you're new um, uh, to our congregation, to uh, let you know that um, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have really put your faith in him, then we invite you to participate with us in this supper. Um, it is uh, the Lord's Supper, and it belongs to Him and to His people. Of oh, you,